Shalom, my name is Rabbi Jason Sobel, and today at the Upper Room, I spoke about tragedy and triumph and how God can bring triumph out of our tragedy and give us a hope that's like a rope that pulls us into our future and into our destiny. Amen. Thank you. Shalom, shalom. How are you all doing? I am super excited, and I have an announcement to make. Hey, guys. You want to go to Israel? We are going to be doing an upper room Israel tour. Me and you all going to Israel next June. Okay, it's going to be announced soon. We've been working hard on it. I am so excited. It was one of my, a great joy to take uh, Pastor Michael and Pastor Lowe to Israel and uh, I love them so much, although I don't know if they love me because every time I come, they're not here. But uh, I don't know if he's, no, he sent me a message today. He said, promise, I promise you that one day we will be there. <laughs> I said, okay, it's all good. I love you. But we miss them. I'm sure you all miss them. I miss them. And, uh, but I know the whole team is doing amazing. Tonight was a powerful night, right? Really, really powerful time of worship. I'm excited about Israel this is a very significant time on the biblical calendar, and I believe there's a great, there's great wisdom and blessing when we come into alignment with God's times and seasons. And this is a significant time that we're in right now, and we're moving quickly towards an even more significant time, which as we come into August and into the fall, we come into the the uh, high holidays, the, the biblical new year, and everything that that represents. And so if, if you want to stay in alignment with that and understand what's going on on this day in history and on key days, we have a, a biblical calendar, and uh, if we have a new one coming out, but if you sign up for the new one, you can get the old one. And we do this to really be a resource to people so you can understand the times and the seasons. We want to stay connected with you. Tons of free teaching and resources. There's some information in the back and want to ask for you all, please pray. Uh, I did a book with Kathy Lee Gifford called The Rock, the Road, and the Rabbi about going to Israel. And we have our new one coming out called The God of the Way in about 30 days. So please pray for us and uh, that this book makes uh, an impact. And I just want to, I want to give this, I, I, I met the, our, the pastors from India, so I want to bless you all with that. Thank you guys for all you're doing. You guys are amazing. Love you all. The God of the way is making a way in India. Amen? Well, this is kind of part two from the morning, but you didn't have to be there for the morning to get this, and we'll summarize a little bit as part of this. But this is a season on the biblical calendar of tragedy. This is a season where some of the worst events in biblical history have occurred. And this is a time when we remember those tragedies. This is a time, as we'll see, when the first house of God, the one built by King Solomon, was destroyed. This is the day when the second house uh, that Yeshua, Jesus himself, and the disciples worshiped in was destroyed. Many other tragic events happened on this particular day in history. And Jewish people all around the world for thousands of years on this day have gathered to 
fast and pray and read the book of Echa, which is in English, Lamentations, which is actually a kind of funeral dirge and, 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 and weep because there's this idea, if we haven't seen the restoration of the things that have been lost, then we in some way are guilty of not seeing them come back because in some way we haven't reversed and made right the wrongs. And so today is the ninth day of the month of Av. Say ninth of Av. And it's significant that these tragedies happen on the ninth day. And we're going to get a little deeper at the end into the number nine and what that means. If you know me, I'm into numbers. But I want to start by saying this, is that nine in Hebrew and in the Bible is the number of birthing. Literally, the Hebrew letter that represents the number nine, Hebrews alphanumeric, that means there's no Roman numerals in the Bible. You write numbers with letters. The ninth letter of the Bible is the letter Tet. Can you say Tet? And Tet is in the shape of a womb and has a numerical value of nine. Why do I say this? It's meant to teach us that although this is a day of tragedy, God uses tragedy to birth transformation and triumph. God will use the tragedies in your life ultimately to transform you and to bring triumph if you understand and partner with him in him. Turn to someone and say, God will bring triumph out of your tragedy. Say to someone, God will bring, God will turn your mourning into dancing. Because the reality is this is a season of sadness, but what we have to understand is you can't truly appreciate the triumph and the victory unless you've gone through some stuff and some tragedies. You can't say you really have gladness if you haven't had periods of sadness because the sadness makes you appreciate the gladness all the more. You can't truly dance if you've never wept. And so God wants to use these things in our lives to change us and to transform us. And that is the season that we're in. And we see it was Yeshua himself who wept. You know, not many times in the Bible, in the New Testament, do we read about Jesus weeping. In fact, there's only two times. One is when he wept over the death of his good friend, his BFF, Lazarus. And the other is in Luke 19, as he drew near and saw Jerusalem, it says he wept over her. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he wept over her at a place that we go to when we go to Israel called Dominus Flavid. It's Latin for he wept. And the place that he wept was on the Mount of Olives. The first place, the, the, the second place we read about him weeping. Why does he weep on the Mount of Olives? Because as he's standing east, looking into the temple, 
He could literally see into the holy place and the holy of holies. And it was from the holy of holies when Israel sinned that the glory departed and stood over the Mount of Olives. And here he is standing on the mountain where Ezekiel in his vision saw the glory depart from Jerusalem, looking into the sacrifices being offered, and he weeps. But the question is, what moved him? What moved him to weep? And what does it mean for us? He was moved to weep because of love and compassion, what we read in Matthew 8. Now Yeshua, that's Jesus' Hebrew name, was going around to the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Yeshua embodies the heart of a father, the heart of love, the heart of compassion. And today is the ninth day of Av. Can you say Av? Av in Hebrew literally means father. So although there is tragedy, the most harsh tragedies in, in Jewish history and biblical history it happens in the month of the Father because I believe, as we'll see, even the tragedies demonstrates the heart of the Father. And I believe Yeshua wept out of compassion because he looked over that temple and he remembered why it was destroyed in the first place. What happened on this day in history? As we said, the first temple destroyed, the second house of God temple destroyed, and we also said that this was the day that the spies came back, the 12 spies from spying out the land, and they brought the negative report, and the people wept, and ultimately they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And he wept because he cares about his people. He's the king of the Jews. He's, he came in human flesh, but he came as a, as in Jewish flesh. And he felt the past sufferings of his people and identified with them because he cared. But he wept because he knew his people were doomed to repeat the same mistake again. And the mistake that the children of Israel made is really oftentimes the same mistake we made. Same mistakes. And we have to understand the root of the cause of their failure so that we can be changed and transformed. We said this morning that the root of all the tragedies that happened on this day was the 12 spies going into the land, coming back, and 10 bring an evil report. They saw the giant fruit. They saw the, the, fruit, the fruitful land, how fertile it was. They saw it overflowing, a land with milk and honey, broad and spacious. They came back with this giant fruit on their shoulder, but their response was, the land is good, but. Friends, whenever you insert your big butts, you're gonna have a problem. Your big butts are what's gonna get you in trouble. When God gives you a promise and you choose to say, thank you, God, but 
You will die in the wilderness like the children of Israel unless you move your big smelly butts. Their butts, their unwillingness to trust God and go in and take the land, their lack of faith was rooted in fear. They saw the giants in the land. And when we face giants, when we face obstacles, when we face barriers, when we face problems, we have two choices. We either learn, we either choose fear of those giants or we choose to be like Joshua and Caleb and trust God who's bigger. And we said this morning that Fear is a false type of faith. Fear and faith demand a fulfillment. The phrase, the thing you fear has come upon you. If you live from the place of fear, you will fail. And here's the reality. It wasn't just true for the 12 that went in to spy out the land. There's another famous 12, the 12 disciples. And they struggled with the same thing. The guy who Yeshua Jesus calls the rock sees his Messiah, sees his master, sees his teacher crucified, denies the Lord three times, locks himself in the upper room, and then Jesus resurrects, appears to them, and what is Peter's response? Man, I think it's a good idea to go to Galilee and go fishing. When the going gets tough, the tough go fishing, right? But it makes sense. Peter is fishing all night with some of the other disciples, and what do they catch? Nothing. Why? Why were their nets empty? In Hebrew, the word for fear can, is, has the same root as the word, I'm sorry, the word for fish, dog, can you say dog? Has the same root as the word for fear, worry, and anxiety. The deeper message of John 21 is that the disciples were fishing from a place of fear, worry and anxiety and therefore their nets will be left empty until Yeshua says cast the net again and they're full of fish 153 here's the point if you live like the if you live from a place of fear like the disciples were in at that moment and it makes sense why Peter had some fears and worries and anxiety. He had denied the Lord and he figured, listen, I blew my calling. I was supposed to be the rock. Clearly, I'm the pebble. I'm not the rock. But God in his goodness, Yeshua restores him. But he had to have to understand that Peter, as long as you live by fear, your life, your relationship, your nets, which signifies calling, will be empty. God is not calling you to live from a place of fear. He's calling for you to live 
from a place of faith. The generation died in the wilderness only to go in Joshua and Caleb of the adult generation of when the spies went in. Of the adults, only two go in. Joshua and Caleb, they had a different spirit. They had a spirit of faith and not of fear. Even Moses didn't enter in. So we have a choice to make. We live in a generation of a time, maybe there's more fear than ever. Possibly in the sense of we're broadcast fear 24 hours a day with 24 hour television and internet and streaming and Apple News. So the world, the kingdom of God runs on faith, but this world, the world of the enemy, the, the world that we live in runs on fear. And the question is, by what economy are you choosing to live? Because you're either living on the currency of heaven, which is faith, or you're living on the currency of the world, which is fear. And for most of us, we got a little bit of both in our pocket. Fear caused the spies on this day in history to respond out of fear, to weep, and to ultimately die in the desert. Friends, God doesn't want you to be like that generation and die in the, in the wilderness. He wants you to be the generation that goes in and takes the land. Turn to someone and say, you're moving from fear to faith and faith to trust. But friends, there's another tragedy that we have to understand because yes, if we live in fear, we're in trouble. It's gonna be tragedy, not triumph. But as we said on this day, God allowed the place where his physical presence was manifest, was dwelling, the place he chose to place his name, the manifest glory of God in the house of God, behind the veil, resting on the Ark of the Covenant. It was on this day, that house that housed his presence was destroyed. But before we can understand why he allowed it to be destroyed and what that practically means for our lives, we have to ask ourselves another question of all the places in the world that God could have chose to cause his name to dwell and his presence to dwell, why did he choose Jerusalem? I gotta tell you, I like Hawaii, it's beautiful, Costa Rica, you know, Italy. There's a lot of beautiful places in the world. You know, the question is, Lord, why did you choose Jerusalem? You know what they say in real, <laughs> when you're in real estate, we have some real estate people here, I know here, and Jared over here, right? What do they say, the three words, what are they? Location, location, location. It's all about the location. Why did he choose that location? Think about it. God calls Abraham. And he begins the calling of Abraham with these words in Hebrew. I'm going to teach you something in Hebrew. Say lech. You got to get the cha in there. Lech. 
Don't spit on your neighbors. Lecha. It means therefore go. Or it can be literally therefore go to yourself. It's the same word that begins the command of the spies. Moses, send for yourself. Lecha. So God tells Abraham to go, to leave. Abraham goes to these 10 tests and it begins with, the first test begins with leave, lech lecha, those words. And Abraham was called to leave his country, his family, everything behind. And then Abraham's 10th test also begins with those words. What's the connection between the first test and the last test with those same words? When God says to Abraham, lech lecha, the first time, what God is saying to Abraham is, Abraham, do you have the faith and love and trust to give me your past? Will you give me your past? Will you entrust me with it? Will you leave your past behind so that you can walk into your future? Because you can't hold on to your past and step into the fullness of your future when God's calling you forward. But the last test of Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, who was that son, what's his name? Isaac, and offer him on the mountain that I will show you. When God says that last test with those same words, God is saying, Abraham, you had faith and trust and love to give me your past, but will you give me your future? Isaac represents the future on which the entirety of the covenant and promises to Abraham and his descendants rest. It's one thing to give God your past, but do you have the faith and trust and love to give him your future? And you're in a moment where your whole future is in front of you, many of you. Will you give it to him? And Abraham says, yes, he named Here I am, Lord, yes, I'll go. And he offers him on that mountain, and that mountain in Hebrew is called Mount Moriah. Say Mount Moriah. That becomes the hill on which God later commands David and Solomon to build the temple, the house of God. It's about location, 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 because Abraham's act of offering of Isaac was the first great demonstration of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It embodies the first commandment the love of Abraham, the father of our faith. That is the place. And so that is the place where the temple is built on the foundation of the love that Abraham laid as a testimony to each and every one of us. But there's another story from Jewish tradition, not in the Bible. But it says there were these two brothers because in ancient times, you'll remember from the Bible that there was a threshing floor on the top of the uh, Temple Mount, because you read about it in the story of David, right? It's a threshing floor. And so there are these two brothers, and it's harvest time, and one brother, two brothers are working their shared field together, their family and farm, and one brother has a big family, and one brother has no family. They equally divide the harvest, and when the evening comes, 
One brother says, you know what? My brother has no children. When he gets old, there's gonna be no one to help provide for him or take care of him. So the brother with many children went and gave him half of his harvest. Well, the brother who gave half his harvest wakes up the next morning and he's got the same amount in the pile even though he'd given half to his brother. And this happened multiple nights until something happened. The older brother who had no children said, my brother has so many mouths to feed, it's just me. Listen, I'm gonna give him half of what I got so he shouldn't have to go without. And as they were going to give each other their half of the half, they meet each other in the middle on the way to each other's threshing floor and they weep and hug because they realize what each was doing for the other. And Jewish tradition says, if two brothers love themselves, loved each other so much, then truly this is a place worthy to put my name. It represents the second great commandment, to love your brother, to love your neighbor as yourself. God chose that location because it represented the two great commandments to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Yeshua weeps over that mount because he knows the destruction is coming. He knows the house is gonna be left to them desolate. But here's what we have to understand. The first house was destroyed because of idolatry. When Israel broke the first commandment, the first tablet, and they worshiped idols, and they offered their children as sacrifices to idols, God destroyed. God allowed the house to be destroyed when the people didn't repent. But do you know what Jewish tradition says why God allowed the temple that Jesus worshiped and that him and the disciples grew up in and ministered in? It says in Hebrew, because of Sinat Chinom, senseless hatred. Because God's people lacked love for one another, God allowed the temple to be destroyed. And ultimately, that culmination, the destruction of the temple was in 70 AD. It was the culmination of a senseless hatred, but it was a senseless hatred that was rooted in the rejection of Yeshua, Jesus, and the good news. Because Jesus says, the he compares his body to the temple. Destroy this temple, and I will what? Raise it up in three days. And the Judean leader said, in 46 years, this temple was being built, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was talking about the temple of his body. Yeshua wept for the destruction of the temple, but he also wept another time. Again, on the Mount of Olives, he wept in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Lord, take this cup from me. Do you know why he said, Lord, take this cup to me, come from me in the Garden of Gethsemane? Gethsemane means the place of the olive press. He was crushed and pressed so that you and I can find forgiveness. 
And he didn't sip that cup, he drained the cup. You know what that means? He drank all of your pain and he drank all of your shame. And he left the cup empty. So the question is, yes, this is a time of tragedy. You can choose to sip from the cup of the tragedies of your life, the pains, the hurts, the rejections, and the disappointment, or you can give him the cup which he willingly drank for you. Someone's gonna drip, drink the cup. He emptied it. Why do we want to refill it? So we see these two things. The house of God was destroyed because when love was the foundation of God's house, when love is gone, the foundation can't remain. So friends, we overcome the tragedies of this day by choosing faith over fear, but we also overcome the tragedies of this day by choosing love over hate. There's so much hate, brother against brother, in the world in which we live. And I'm not talking even, there's a lot of extreme hate, racism, you know, like all sorts of racism against African Americans. There's anti-Semitism against Jews. There's all sorts of hatred in the world against all sorts of people, and that is really terrible, and we need to fight against this hatred. We have to come in the opposite spirit, which is the spirit of love. But there's also a more subtle form of hatred. And it's the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is like the first temple that was destroyed. He said to his dad, listen, give me my inheritance he said, you're kind of dead to me, like Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. Dad, you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance. And he goes and squanders it on wine, women, and a wild life, right? And then he has a wake-up moment in the what? Pig pen. Did you ever wonder why the pig pen? Of all the places? We go into this, listen, in Hebrew, the pig is the most unclean animal. Why? Because two things make an animal kosher. It chews, it has cloven hooves, which is an external side, and it chooses, chooses cud, which is an internal sign. So the pig has the external sign of being kosher, but it lacks the internal sign. It's the hypocrite. It's someone who looks good on the outside, but is completely something else on the inside. But there's something beautiful there. The word for pig in Hebrew is chazir. Can you say chazir? It means to return in Hebrew. There is a promise for the pig. The rabbis say that in the messianic kingdom, pigs will be kosher and I'll get to eat bacon. <laughs> the rabbis say that God is going to transform the pig internally and it'll chew its cud and it will become kosher. Listen, if there's a promise for the pig, there's a promise for you and me. 
If there's a promise for the pig, which represents the hypocrite, there's a promise for any purpose, any person that is willing to say, you know what, I messed up, I fell short. I'm gonna get up and go back to the Father, and he embraces us with open arms. Papa God always wants you to come home. He's searching the horizon. It doesn't matter how far you've gone or what you've done. If God will change a pig, he'll certainly change and transform you and welcome you back, right? That's the first temple. Idolatry, turning our back on the Father, turning our back on the Lord. But then there's the second temple, senseless hatred. Listen, that's the older brother, He's not happy his brothers returned. He's not happy his dad killed the fatted calf. He has a religious spirit. He has an unforgiving spirit. He has a harsh, critical, judgmental spirit. And you know what? We don't know if he ever changed. He had the inheritance of the father. He was the firstborn son, but he didn't get the heart of the father. He missed it. And I gotta tell you, there's a lot of people sitting in church and they miss it. They'll raise their hands and praise Jesus and they'll judge every single person around them in a way that they don't measure up. It is a spirit of criticism and judgment of looking down on other people as being less than, not good enough, but the reality is we often look down on other people and judge them harshly because we judge ourselves even harsher if we choose to admit it or not. It's out of our own hurts and insecurities and fears that we treat other people harshly. And God's house, which is supposed to be the most welcome and loving place, Jesus welcomed the prostitute and sinners, is a place where there's so much infighting, politicalness, judgment. Friends, and we wonder why the house in Jerusalem is destroyed and the kingdom hasn't come. We have to look within. We, have to, we look at the world and say, oh, that racism out there, all the people, terrible things. Listen, we have hate in our hearts. That's the truth. It might be subtle, but it's there. That negative, critical, judgmental spirit. My son asked me, God, is it, my son asked me, Dad, is it more important to love God or people? And I did a very Jewish thing. I answered a question with a question. Hey, son, what do you think? Jesus loved to answer questions with questions. He said to me, well, Dad, it says to love our neighbor. He said, I suppose loving our neighbor is one of the most tangible ways we love God. If we say we love God and hate our neighbor, John says the truth is not in us. Friends, where's the love? Love is taking care of one another. Isaiah 22 says, I will place the shoulder 
I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. When he op- what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Listen, I don't know about you. There's a lot of you know, questions about what that means, the key of David. But I can tell you this. It comes with authority. Binding and loosing. You know, there's only one other place in all of scripture where the key of David is mentioned. It's in the book of Revelation. And this is what it says. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. He promises the keys of the house of David to the church of Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia is the only church in the book of Revelation that doesn't get condemnation. And you know what Philadelphia means? The church of brotherly love. If you want the keys, the keys are rooted in love. If you want to see God open doors that no man can shut, you have to have the keys of love. And much of God's people's, much of Israel's senseless hatred was rooted in fear. Listen, lies feed fear. When you believe, when you feed on the lies, you feed on fear. Fear is fed by lies. When we be lies, right, the root of hate is we believe lies about a certain group of people. We believe those lies, it cultivates fears in our hearts, and then it leads us to hate them out of that fear. Fear, like fear is, fear is present focus. No, fear is future focus. Lies are present focus. Lies want us to believe about the worst about people, to believe the negative. Lies lead to hate. Lies and propaganda fed by hate and violence that dehumanize individuals. But we overcome lies with the truth, but it's easy to believe lies about people. We overcome lies with the truth and we overcome senseless hatred as well as fear with radical love. Friends, what does Yeshua say? What does John say? There is no fear in love, but perfect love, what? Drives out fear. The more we allow the love of God to infiltrate our life, the more we drive out the fear. There is no fear in love. Why? And how is it connected to this month? This month is the month of Av. Av is, Av is the same word as Abba. Abba means what? This is the month of the Father. Let me tell you what. What drives out the fear is the love of the Father for you. Knowing that there is complete acceptance of you by the Father means that there's no room for the lies, there's no room for the failure because your value and worth is not built upon what you have or what you can do, but solely because the Father loves you. God's Father heart is demonstrated in this month. Because one of God's greatest acts of kindness was the destroying of both his houses. Why? Because instead of God destroying his people, 
he destroyed a place made of bricks and stones. And the same even more so in the person of Jesus. Instead of God bringing justice and judgment upon us, he placed it upon his son who said, my body is the temple. The destruction of the physical temple was meant to point to the destruction on a spiritual level of our Messiah who gave his life for us. Now I want to get deep for a moment. This is the ninth of Av. There's a negative and aspect aspect to this ninth. The letter, the letter, the number nine, the letter Tet represents to be to sink to a low place. It represents impurity. The word for impurity in Hebrew begins with the letter Tet. The people on this day had sunk to a really low level. But there's more. I want you to think about it for a moment. You have nine and then you have six. Six in the Bible is a number of connection. Literally the word, the number six is written with the letter Vav, which means and. God created the heavens and earth, which is the letter Vav and the number six. So letter six represents the connection between heaven and earth. But I want you to think about this for a moment. If six represents connection in the positive, if you flip six upside down, what number does it become? Six flips upside down is nine. The connection with God and with our neighbor was turned on its head. The letter tet represents sunken, impure. It's the turning of six on its head. It also can represent a coiled serpent. And it can represent falsehood. It represents the serpent lying in the garden to Adam and Eve to speak fear that led them to doubt, that led their doubt led to disobedience, that led to the, disc, the breaking of the six, the connection between them and God and between man and woman, husband and wife and one another. So when you talk about the mark of the beast being 666, it represents complete falsehood complete impurity, completely the serpent dominating our lives and our worldview. On the positive side, when Jesus, Yeshua, gives up his spirit, it's what hour? The ninth hour. He dies at the ninth hour to defeat the serpent, to overcome falsehood, to remove the impurity that causes us to sink and leads to destruction. And the letter Tet represents God's goodness. Tov, say Tov. He's restoring the good, the tov, out of the tragedy. Restoring the good in your life. It reminds us that Yeshua came to defeat evil and to restore the good. It reminds us that God brings good out of the bad. Turn to someone and say, God is going to bring good out of your bad. It's triumph over tragedy. It's faith that overcomes fear. It's love that overcomes faith. But we'll close on this in a moment. It also, the letter Tet also represents hope. Fear leads to hopelessness. Fear leads to hopelessness. In Jewish tradition, we read the book of Lamentations on this day. In the midst of all these terrible things that are written, this is what it says, right? 
My soul has been deprived of shalom. I have forgotten goodness. I said my endurance has perished and my hope from Adonai is gone. I remember my affliction, my homelessness, my bitterness and gall. Whenever I remember, my soul is downcast within me. But this I recall and therefore I have what? Hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies come to an end. Every morning, great is your faithfulness. Hope is the belief that your future is gonna be better than your past. See, there was a great rabbi and they were looking over the destruction of Jerusalem and most of them began to weep and one began to laugh. Because he said, if God's house lays in ruins, but he promises to rebuild it, surely God will fulfill his promise. Two looked at the desolation and wept. One looked at it and laughed. Can you laugh in the face of tragedy? When you do, it demonstrates that you have an unbreakable hope in your life. I'll just say this about hope and then we'll close. Listen, remember when Joshua sends the spies in to scout out Jericho? Story of Rahab. For Rahab to be spared, she had to do what? Put a what in her window? A scarlet cord. Listen, in Hebrew, you know what that word for scarlet cord is? The word for cord there? It's the word tikva. Can you say tikva? Tikva is the Hebrew word for hope. The cord in her window that we translate cord is literally a word for hope. Tikva can mean to twist or stretch. God stretches you to strengthen you. The tragedies, the losses, the things that you go through, it is going to stretch you sometimes to the point of breaking. But the stretching is always for the sake of strengthening. Turn to someone and say, your stretching is for the sake of strengthening. That red cord represented an unbreakable promise God made to Rahab and her family. When everything else was crumbling, she maintained hope. When all the walls fell around her and everything came tumbling down, she didn't have a wishy-washy hope like I hope God delivers us. She had a certain unbreakable, immovable, 100% expectation that God was gonna do what God said says he's going to do. God wants to give you hope because hope is literally a rope that will pull you out of your pits. It will pull you out of your prisons. It will pull you out of your tragedies. It will pull you up. It will pull you near and it will pull you into your destiny. These things remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. That's the message of this day. You don't have to live in tragedy. God can transform your loss into gain, your tragedy into triumph if you choose love, 
if you choose hope and if you choose faith. An unbreakable promise to your life. And the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Friends, in heaven, in the kingdom, there's no faith. Faith is a belief for what you don't have. Every promise will be fulfilled. You don't need faith. You won't need hope. Hope is the belief that your future is gonna be better than your past. When the kingdom comes, known when Jesus returns, known as the blessed hope, it doesn't get any better. Right? But what endures is love. Love lasts. It's the greatest. Peter was living in fear. Then Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. In Jewish thought, the right side represents God's love and his kindness. The left side represents fire and judgment. When Peter lived from the place of love, his nets were full. God spoke to me one day, he said, Jason, the greatest revival the world has ever known is coming, but it's not rooted in fear, it's rooted in love. Will we be that love? Haters are gonna hate, people are gonna be judgmental, people are gonna be critical, but friends, let it not be us. Stop judging yourself harshly. Stop criticizing yourself. Stop criticizing those around you. Choose love. Your life will be filled like those nets. There will be a hope that gives you a promise for your future, and there will be a faith that causes you to transcend and rise above. So Lord, we just wanna thank you for this evening, and we just wanna say we love you. We love you. And we love you because you first loved us. And we thank you for that hope that is a rope that you are extending to us right now. It is a lifeline. And if you want that hope, just grab hold of it now. But I just want to take a moment and I want to sing the words of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ask my wife Miriam to sing it. I want you to meditate on this, sing it along, because these words, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, it's actually a pledge of love and allegiance to the king. What we're saying is we're gonna love you, worship you, and serve you alone. So let's sing these words together. Shama Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Shama Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu
I want to do one more thing. Amen? So this is the month of Av, the month of the Father. And I just want to say a father, we stand here as, to release a father and mother's blessing over you. It's traditional for the father to lay his hands on his children, sons and daughters, and say these blessings over the daughters Yes, he makes Sarah Riv Karachavalea. May God make you like the matriarchs, the women of faith, the founding mothers of the faith, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. May he make you like Mary, the mother of Yeshua, Mary, Miriam, Magdalene, and all the other great women of faith in the new covenant. May you arise as a woman into your God-given destiny. God does not do ugly. He has made you beautiful and he has given you beauty for ashes and making you beautiful inward and out in your time. And I say to the men, as a father, may God make you like the sons of Joseph like Ephraim and Manasseh who received the double portion of the 12 tribes of Israel may God make you fruitful may he make you wise may he make you strong may you grow into a full understanding of what it means to walk in the stature of Messiah Yeshua and to love the women in your life like he loved us to love them like Messiah Yeshua Yeshua loves his people, the church. And this final blessing over you, the ironic benediction from number six. Ya'er Adonai Panevelecha Vikuneko Yisa Adonai Panevelecho Vayasem Lecho Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and give you shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken. The hands of the Father are upon your head. For the men and the women, 
God has called you blessed. The impartation of the blessing. Arise in faith. Arise in hope. Arise in love. Possess your promise. Take the land. He's gone before you. In Yeshua Jesus' name, amen.